Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church in Jersey. So Ruth was a young lady many years ago, over 3,000 years ago. She was born in a, a part of the world called Moab, which was bordering Israel on the other side of the Jordan River, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They were enemies of the Israelites. When the Israelites had tried to get into the promised land, the Moabites had not been helpful. And as a result, in Deuteronomy 23, there's a, a, quite a scary verse. It says, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of their descendants will enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So the Moabites were not a friendly nation. And this young lady, Ruth, would have been born, lived her life as a Moabite lady, all the ins and outs of life, just a normal life. She would have gone to Moabite preschool, Moabite high school, uh, Moabite careers college. She would have met Joe the Moabite, who is a great Moabite young lad. She would have had children. She would have lived and died and grown up and done all the things of life in Moab. And I'm sure none of us would have the faintest clue that she ever existed. But something happened. Ruth somehow got connected with the people of God and the purposes of God. And as a result, 3,300 years later, there is a book in our Bible called Ruth. She is a hero of the faith. She is King David's great-grandmother. And in Matthew chapter 1, where it lists the genealogy of Jesus, Ruth is there as one of the people who God used to bring the Messiah to planet Earth. She went from someone who was excluded. She may have had a nice, happy, earthly life, but as far as the purposes of God are concerned, she was excluded and irrelevant, and she became an integral part of God's purposes, part of God's family, one of the most important women that God used to bring his purposes to bear on planet earth. And there are lessons that you and I can learn. What I want us to get to through this series is to identify with Ruth. Say, I am Ruth. I was excluded. I was a pagan. I grew up in a life in a, in a home. There was quite a lot of money. My dad was a successful banker. He was good at sport. My mom was a TV personality, we were, she was famous, we, we had all the worldly trappings of joy in life, but I was excluded from the purposes of God. I would have fallen off the pages of history, but more importantly, I would not have been recorded in God's book of life in heaven, and I would not have been part of God's family if God hadn't, just like Ruth, connected me with Him through His people. I am Ruth. I would have been nowhere. I have two half-brothers who um, are very similar to me in looks and everything about us, and they are nowhere near God right now. They, they are far from God and far from God's purposes. I would have been there. I am Ruth. I was lucky enough to be found by God and connected by God with His people. And Ruth ended up being in a place with a family, with children, grandchildren, uh, just 
just part of the, the fullness of God was in her life and flowing through her life. And what we want to do over the next few weeks is look through four chapters. Very, very short little book in the Bible. You could even easily overlook Ruth. It's, it's after Judges and it's, and it's before Samuel. It's so easy to ignore the book of Ruth. But there are gems in here today. So we're going to learn from Ruth and we're going to say, I am Ruth. What can I learn about how do I get from maybe a happy worldly life, but excluded from God's purposes, into God's family and God's purposes and, and being part of something so much more important and eternal? How do I move from there to there? Four chapters will help us. We're going to look at chapter one today. Are you ready for this? You are Ruth. I am Ruth. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab, and remained there. Why? Because there was a famine in Israel. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the woman of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilian also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Tragedy has struck. Tragedy has struck. Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons leave Israel. They go to Moab trying to find food and disaster of disasters. Elimelech dies. Malon and Kilian die. Then she arose, verse 6. This is talking about Naomi. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Very human situation, isn't it? There's this lady, Naomi, who has this beautiful characteristic of not being clingy and not trying to control. You know that little 
poem. If you love something, set it free. If it comes back to you, it's yours. If it doesn't, hunt it down and kill it. Have you heard that little phrase? <laughs> Naomi had this beautiful sense. I'll set you free. If you come back to me, I'm yours. You're mine. And if you don't, that's fine. She was saying to her daughters-in-law, go, go and find new husbands. Very human, very beautiful sentiment. Go and make a life for yourselves. I've got nothing to offer you. And Orpah, the one daughter, went. And she fell off the pages of history. The only reason we know Orpah's name is because it's a footnote in Ruth's story and because Oprah Winfrey, her mum thought she was reading it right and she read it Oprah instead of Orpah. Did you know that? It's true. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they'd come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now we're going to read chapters 2, 3, and 4 in future weeks. But I want to just give you a preview. It goes well. It's not easy, but it goes well. They come back as beggars, and Ruth is guided by Naomi, but Ruth is a hardworking young lady. She goes and she gathers what's left over of other people's pickings. She meets a man, and the Lord has organized it that he's the right man. He's called a kinsman redeemer. He's a family member who will look after her, and he marries her. He falls in love with her, and he takes her in. And then right at the end of chapter 4, it says, verse 15, So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Praise the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you take us who don't deserve anything and you put us into your family. You graft us into your vine, Lord. You make us something special when we are nothing, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. So I have three lessons today. The first lesson that we can learn about how we move from obscurity to what God wants for us is that hardship and pain is not sent by God, but God can use it to bring us into His purposes. I wonder how many of us here 
It's, it's probably not all of us, but there's often a large percentage of people who would say, I would not have looked for God if something bad hadn't happened in my life. Many, many of us. And God doesn't send the bad things. The Bible is clear, I believe. Others may disagree with me, and that's fine. But I believe that uh, James chapter 1 says, when someone is tempted or tested, we shouldn't say God is doing this to me, because God cannot be tempted by evil, but every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights above. God is good. He only wants good for us. He blesses, blesses, blesses. We live in a messed up world that's turned its back on God and we rebel against God. But God says, I'm so good that I will use even those bad things to give you opportunity after opportunity to cry out to me. And we need to say, thank you, God, not for the bad things, but in the midst of the bad things. Lord, thank you that you can use this terrible situation, this hardship, the sickness, this lack, this problem, even the sins that others have committed, and even the sins that I have committed. God, you can use those and the pain and the hardship to bring me to a place a famine, and then a death, and then another two deaths. Tragedy after tragedy, and yet those were what brought Ruth to the place where she could be grafted in to God's purposes for her. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for those hardships. But let me learn the lessons of the hardships correctly. Amen? You know, we can let the hardships make us bitter and twisted. How many of us know a person who you speak to them and within 10 minutes of speaking to them, you realize that their life is defined by some hardship that happened 20 years ago? They are still living as a little child who was abused or a, or a husband whose wife had an affair or a, a person who made a terrible mistake. They're living in the past because they haven't learned the lesson that if I give it to Jesus, he makes all things beautiful in his time. He turns all things together for good. He takes our mistakes and our mess-ups and he weaves them together into this beautiful tapestry. Individual threads that we think are so ugly. These red, blood-red tragedies in our lives. And he weaves them together when we put them in the, the master's hand. And then we look at them again and we see a beautiful tapestry. It was a crooked road that led me to Jesus, but I'm with him at, at last. And I can testify to that. You know, my life is one disaster after another. Many of them of my own making, some of them not. And God has made something better than I could ever have made on my own out of those mistakes. And He can do that for you. Amen? Amen. That's the first lesson. Hardship and pain is not of God, but He uses it. If we treat it properly, if we thank Him, if we forgive those who've hurt us, if we say, Lord, I put all my life into Your hands, I thank You that You are working all things together for good. Thank You even for that horrible person, that horrible situation, that natural disaster, that sickness, that tragedy, that whatever it is, thank You, God. And He floods in with His presence. I've told this story before, but I clearly remember as a little teenage boy, in my bed, there was drunkenness, disasters going on in my home. There was police and violence, and it was just a nightmare. And I remember thanking God in the midst of that. I don't know why. I think I might have read a little book. In fact, I had. I'd read a book about how you praise God in all circumstances, and His presence floods in. And I just thanked Him for my situation. And very soon after that, God started changing 
my life and my family's life and his power flooded in and he started using the bad to be a blessing to me and to others. So let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you even for the bad that's going on right now in our lives. Thank you that as we praise you, you flood in. Your presence comes in like a flood. When the enemy comes in like a flood, you raise up a standard and you help us through it. And so God, we praise you now in the midst of pain and also for the previous hardships in our lives. Thank you, God, that you're working them for good so that this, the end result is better than it would have been without you in Jesus' name. Amen. My second point about how we move from nowhere to somewhere with God, how we move from being an outsider, a foreigner, you know, Ephesians 2 verse 19 says, so you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, you are citizens along with all of God's holy people, you are members of God's family. Each one of us, even if you're of Jewish extraction, it doesn't matter. We are all excluded foreigners because of sin. And God took us and made us part of his own family, part of his own body. There's a, there's a lovely verse which says, God will never let anyone pluck you out of his hand. And actually God showed me, it's not just that I'm in his hand, I'm part of his hand. I'm actually one of his fingers now. That's how much he's got me. He took me from nowhere and he put me in his hand. And the second lesson is that people who you align yourself with, who you get to know, who you spend time with, that is so important in finding your destiny with God. Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. And there are many, many similar verses in the Bible. Who we spend time with affects us. We become like the people we spend time with. Have you ever seen one of those competitions where they say, um, how similar does a person look to their spouse? And how similar does a person look to their pet dog? Have you ever seen those? And it's astounding how similar they can look. Even if they look very different when they first got to know each other, they start to look more and more alike. So get a nice looking dog. Amen? <laughs> but the people we align ourselves with affect our destiny. You know, Ruth could have chosen wonderful Mr. Moab guy. But she chose one of Naomi and Elimelech's sons. And she could have easily gone back to her Moabite life, but she chose to stay with Naomi. The people we align ourselves with, the people we open our hearts to, they will help us find God. I just want to make it clear before I go on that no human being can save you. No human being can heal you. No human being can fill you with God's Spirit. No human being can do anything miraculous, but if we align ourselves with people, they can help us find God. Amen? We've got to find the right people. Find a person who exudes the character of Jesus. Find a person who's not trying to manipulate you like a used car salesman. I apologize if there are any used car salesmen in the, in the congregation. You know what I'm trying to say. Find a person who shows the character and the love of Jesus, who exudes the Spirit of Christ, and link yourself with those people. But now, you would ask me the question, does that mean... I must cut off all relationships 
with non-believing family and friends? Does that mean I must become a monk or a nun and just ex exclude myself from worldly connections? No, the Bible says we are in the world, but not of the world. Let me explain that. A ship is designed to be in the sea, but not of the sea. If the sea gets into the ship, the ship is sunk. But the ship is designed to be in the sea, but the sea mustn't ever get in the ship. You, Christian, are designed to be in the world. You say to me, why do you think that, Greg? Surely we're designed to be just with Christians and just in holy huddles and just in holy places. No, if that was the case, the minute you got born again, God would have taken you to heaven. If God didn't want us in the world, then the baptism ceremony would be hold the person under, 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 under. I have died with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But there would be no one to baptize you because we would all be in heaven immediately. We are designed to be in the world. Jesus said you are the salt of the earth. You know, salt, you put it on meat or on food and it pro provides flavor. It also stops the meat from rotting and it creates a thirst that the person wants water. That's our job. We're supposed to be in the world, in the, in the places where there's evil. Jesus was with the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the drunkards, all the time. They said he's just a friend of sinners. Why? He was the salt of the earth. He was providing flavor. He was creating thirst. He was stopping the rot. That's our job. But as soon as the world gets into your heart, if you're close associations, if those people who you love and are committed to are the world's people rather than God's people, you will be dragged away. When a lady tells me that she is dating a non-Christian man, I say to her, you are up here and he is down there and you're holding hands and you're thinking you can pull him up, he can pull you down. Amen? It's easier to pull down. Be careful. I'm not saying, all I'm saying is just be careful, please, please, please. Be careful who you open your heart to. We must be the salt of the earth. We must be in the world, but we must not let the world get into us. And we must align ourselves with the right people. And now my third point is that Christian relationships are different from other relationships in that we invoke or involve God's power in our friendships. You know, you can join the Lions Club, the Rotary Club, the whatever charity you want, and you can have good friendships. You can join a sports club, and you can have great friendships. You can join a company, and you can have good relationships. You can form agreements with other people based on law and legal systems where you write contracts, and you sign at the bottom, and you say, this is how we will behave. And many people think, when they come out of the world into Christianity, they think, our relationships are the same as those relationships. I want to say there's a whole nother level when it comes to Christian relationships. And it's called covenant. And what it means is I invoke God's power into this relationship. The world calls it contract. God calls it covenant. And so um, in 1 Samuel 18, I believe it is, David and Jonathan make a covenant with each other where they, they swap their armor. They give each other their, their sword and their 
belt and their armor and their cloak. And they say, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. I will protect you, you will protect me. And it says that their souls were knit together so that even when Jonathan died, David found one of his little children who was left, a, a crippled boy called Mephibosheth, and he adopted him and he ate at David's table for the rest of his life. That's covenant relationship. Amen? And these words of Ruth are just... I don't know. They just move me so much. Wherever you go, I will... This is Ruth talking to her mother-in-law. <laughs> you know, mother-in-laws can be difficult relationships, amen? It can be. Mother-in-laws are interfering often. Mine isn't. Mine's wonderful. <laughs> love, love you, Mom. But it can be a difficult relationship. But she said, we're going to invoke God. There's going to be, there's going to be something. I, I have the opportunity to leave and go back and, and be with the world. But I'm actually committing beyond a normal earthly commitment. And why am I saying this? Because, brothers and sisters, I'm calling us as a church to a higher level of commitment. And it's not a clingy, controlling thing. There's no negative if you don't go to this level. Honestly, we as a church, everyone is welcome, no matter what level of commitment you want to make. But there's a blessing when we go to this covenant level. And in fact, we had a prophetic word. There was a, a, a man from England who came over to our church about four weeks ago, and he made a, prophes a prophecy for us. He recorded it on tape so that we have it forever. And he said, God is wanting to meld together people who are covenanted in this church for the same vision and mission. And that's what he's doing at this time. And, and it resonated with us. We felt actually that's true. And this verse describes what that is. It's not just we're friends, although we are. It's not just that we have fun and we pat each other on the back and we play five-a-side football together and we have meals. All that's great. There's this other level where we bring God into it and he melds us together in the spirit. And this is what Ruth had. She said, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And what that looks like is we say, I'm committed to you. I'm not saying God will always keep us in the same place. Because we know from the whole of the Bible, and especially New Testament Christianity, that Christians move around a lot. And so you may be sent with your work, or maybe by the Lord, to go to Timbuktu. And I may be sent to Reykjavik. It doesn't matter. There's still a connection where we love, we honor one another, and we're open and honest with each other. And we say, I am committed to this friendship and this relationship. I am for you, and I always will be. I will protect you. I have your back. I will hope, protect, trust, and persevere. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 says. Love always hopes, always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. I will love you because we are more than just friends. There's a body element in the church, in the body of Christ, where uh, we, we're united in the Spirit, and I'm committed to you. And even when times are hard, I will go the extra mile and push through the discomfort and the unease to try and make this relationship work. And even if we have to go separate ways and be far away, I will always hope the best. I will always protect you. I will always trust you. And I will always persevere. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Perhaps just stay seated.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I really am like Ruth. Lord, I deserve nothing. I'm, I've been your, I have been your enemy in the past, Lord. Lord, I deserve nothing from you. And yet you were kind enough to put people in my life that I could get to know that would introduce me to you. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters right now. And each of us prays this prayer. Friend, just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, unite me with the people that will lead me closer to you. Help me to love the world, but to never let the world get into my heart. And Lord Jesus, help me to deepen my commitment with my brothers and sisters, because together, as a body, we can do so much more for you. Help us, Lord. Help us to covenant, not just to be friends, not just to have an agreement, but to covenant together to achieve your goals and your purposes in planet Earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you're here today and you are still living in Moab, you don't know Jesus, you may have been to church many times, but you say, I don't know Jesus like you're talking about. I would love to pray with you after the service. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and start to use some of those gifts of the Holy Spirit, I would love to pray with you after the service. And there are several of us here, uh, David and Shirley, Jonathan and Norlene, I think Adam and Kuda are here, Andrew sometimes is here, Pat, um, there are various of us who would love to pray with you after the service. James, Nathan, there's various people. So come up for prayer and we'll pray with you and, and introduce you to this wonderful God that we know. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry financially by making a donation on the giving page of leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.